Welcome to the Born Unbreakable Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Des, mindset motivator and lifestyle entrepreneur. From lost trauma, disappointments, and devastation to healing hope and betterment, what has grounded me is my unbreakable spirit. We all have that spirit within us. Every week, I'm here to inspire you with stories of perseverance and growth. My mission is to help you crush self-limiting beliefs and to be unapologetically you. You are your only limit, so take action today. Let your unbreakable ride begin now. This episode is brought to you by Brossery. More than just bra straps, the accessory I love. With styles from dainty to daring, you will too. Click the link in the description or go to brossery.com and use promo code BUSHIP to get free shipping on your order today. Welcome to the Born Unbreakable podcast. I have been looking forward to doing this interview for a long time. I have a special place in my heart for the subject matter that we're going to talk about today. And I'm actually talking about something that I have never talked about on the show before in this show or my previous show, and that's politics and race. Whoa, I know what people are thinking. This is going to be crazy or divisive. And I want to just call out right from the beginning is it's quite the opposite. When I, I, but I've caught your attention. I know I've done that. I say politics and I say race for the purpose of pointing out my goal is for unity not divisiveness. So we're not here to talk about Democrats versus Republicans or anything like that. It's really to to talk more about humanity, compassion, action, and what we can do as events have unfolded. Let's just be really candid. Um, as we look back to 2020, we've seen some really unfortunate things in our society from George Floyd and everything else that comes along with that in our African-American community. And in 2021, unfortunately, we've seen those types of things continue in our Asian-American and Pacific Islander, our AAPI community. And it's been unfortunate to see that. I had the great fortune to reconnect with a friend of mine who's the guest today. His name is Jeff Lee. And Jeff and I go back 20 years. I know I look 20 still. No, um, we actually went to UC San Diego together. We are fellow political science majors. If you could think back that far, Jeff, I know it was a, a while back. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt and Thurgood Marshall was our, <laughs> our representative years of being senators uh, back then in college. And Jeff has gone on to do many things. I'll name a few or else we'd be here all night long. Um, Jeff currently is the vice president of public policy and external affairs at Rhino. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Prior to that, he was a political partner of the Truman National Security Project. And he also spent several years as the former deputy cabinet secretary to the former California governor, Jerry Brown, and many things in between um, over the course of the last almost two decades. And um, what really brought 
me to inviting Jeff to the show was a piece that he wrote in April in Politico, uh, really being vulnerable and sharing his experience as a Vietnamese American. And I'm going to let him talk about that. But Jeff, first of all, just thank you for coming on the show. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, Des. It's great to celebrate 20 years with you uh, and to know that you look exactly the same <laughs> in 20 years. I think that might be the, you know, the, the Asian thing, but still, it's pretty incredible uh, how some things change and some things don't. So it's just the technology has changed a little, but the, the yeah. reunion is still wonderful. So it's great. It it's is. Here. Oh my gosh, it really, really is, Jeff. We've had some amazing times in, in in creating a lot of positive change, you know, in college and fortunate to be able to do even more in the world today. But, you know, where I really wanted to start our conversation is your journey into politics. So where did that start? Why did you go in that direction? Tell Tell us about that. Sure. I, I mean, I think like anything, when we talk about politics, it's about the backstory, right? And the origin story, which I think is so powerful in, in American politics, probably. And that starts with my family. Uh, my family were Vietnamese refugees, right? Who escaped Vietnam on a 32-foot raft uh, and bounced around to different uh, refugee camps in Thailand and later in the Philippines and landed in California in 1981. I was born not too long after that, um, but it was a great example of uh, understanding that um, I came from a community that uh, escaped with nothing and worked to try to achieve something, and that something would be the American dream. And I would define the American dream. I think it's helpful and important to know that from an immigrant or recent immigrant perspective, especially one coming from trauma, the American dream is providing the choice for their children to choose whatever they want to do. And that's something that's pretty powerful. If you think about it from an Asian American Pacific Islander perspective, there's a lot of misnomers and stereotypes of what that means in terms of what's success, right? And that's something we'll dig into today. Um, but, you know, my parents, you know, use their savings and saved up what they could to start a gardening landscaping company, right? We were mowing lawns. That was my first job. I was nine years old, mowing lawns in idyllic Orange County, California, right? Wow. Um, yeah. So that was sort of the backbone to, you know, why politics, right? It was very much a perspective of um, why am I, you know, we're working so hard. We're, we're passionate about our community. Where are we going? Who's representing us? Why should we care? And actually it wasn't, uh, you know, until I went to University of California at San Diego with you, Des, where you know, we served in the student senate together. But actually the reason why I ran for the student senate was because um, at Thurgood Marshall College, um, there were not any handicap accessible doors when I was there. And so there were a number of community members who um, were unable to have ease of access to their classes. And it really struck me. And I found each time I'd open the door for my peers, the first thing I asked myself was, why, why do they need somebody to open this door? Shouldn't they should be able to get through? And that was actually one of the reasons why I, I ran for office in that uh, time was this feeling and notion that there needs to be somebody who can support and defend and inspire others uh, to really invest and bet on themselves. 
So it's sort of you're this conduit of encouraging others to be their best selves and at the same time recognizing that um, it's a team sport here. So that was sort of the inter, you know, the original interlude into politics, right? Um, you know, as a little boy, I really thought at 10 years old, oh my gosh, I'll be, I want to be Asian president, right? It's fifth grade, watching the, you know, the presidential debates. And I remember asking my mom, Des, and I said, um, you know, do you think I can be president? And, you know, in our, in 2021, you know, I don't think you actually really do hear about Asian Americans being president. You know, you hear about other groups and totally understandable, but actually, but imagine back then, imagine in 1992 to say such a thing. And my mom said, you know, son, they don't think you're American. It's probably not a good idea. It's not safe. And you have to remember, my parents are coming from a place where their farm in Vietnam was collectivized by a dictatorial government, right? So there was a little <laughs> right. skepticism, Des. And I remember uh, later that year, right, um, I decided I was going to run for um, student body, you know, president in my fifth grade class. And I remember telling one of my, like, classmates, like, hey, I'm thinking about running. Can I get your vote? And this, this boy looked at me and he said, you know, um, no one's going to vote for you because nobody thinks that nobody thinks that uh, we should be voting for someone that eats dog. And I remember just thinking, well, I don't eat dog. What are you talking about? Oh gosh! But, but also this realization that, oh my gosh, does everybody think that? Um, and there was sort of this disconnect, right? I thought I was trying to fit in. I thought I was fitting in. And later that day, I, I remember, you know, you go through your class day, right? And it was after lunchtime, you come back. And then there was this drawing of what looked like me on a piece of paper that was taped to my desk of me eating a dog. And um, I was obviously upset. And I started, you know, running to the bathroom to cry a little. Um, and I was in there for a while. And finally, another boy came in to check in on me. And he was like, hey, like, why are you crying? Is it, um, you know, did you do badly on the math test? So there, even at that age, Des, yeah. there was this perspective of like, you're the other. You are uh, not deserving of certain standing. And that you, um, your Americanness, you're, you're always going to be foreign. And that was something that really inspired um, a lot of um questions I had over my, you know, my teens and later my twenties about mm -hmm. trying to figure out where would I fit in the world? Right. And increasingly I still wanted to be in public service. Right. So I did a number of, you know, things in my career, right. I worked in Congress. I worked in the United Nations. I served two tours in Afghanistan. Um, and I still felt this feeling like I didn't really belong. And I mean, you and I are both proud Californians, right? Yes. Oh my gosh. And you know, Mexican food, in and out, all of that stuff, all right? All of it. All of that. Beaches, freedom, liberty. Woo! But it wasn't um, until after I served in Afghanistan, I was asking myself, Des, like, what was I doing for our country, my country, our state, my state? And that was when I had this opportunity to work for Jerry Brown. And it was such a fascinating experience to go to Sacramento, a place that you know I didn't really, really know too well, and being in a position to you know be involved in policy and um, you know help shape um, uh, you know a framework or support for 40 million Americans, right? Fifth largest economy in the world. In the world, um, the place of innovation. 
Um, to me, Silicon that was, Valley. <laughs> yeah, but not just Silicon Valley. I mean, you know, one of the world's most productive and most um, powerful uh, agriculture community, right? Yes. You know, Napa, right? Almonds, yeah. you name I it. I live here yes. by the farms in Brentwood. We've got amazing the farms here. So we do have such an abundance here in California and our economy. So you having the opportunity to take such a large task had to feel very exciting. I mean, when else do you have the chance to work on issues that affect real people, right? You know, whether it's 1.6 million veterans and supporting them and their in, you know, support after serving our country. Uh, whether that was, um, you know, pushing for innovative technology policy that affects the world, right? Consumer protection and privacy, right? California is a leader on those issues. So to be in the chair to help make decisions on that was very powerful. Um, and to me, that was uh, an opportunity of a lifetime, right? Amazing. Um, and that was priceless. Yeah. And you stuck with it so you've you've been doing this for so long and i want to ask you about and and just get really candid and then i want to mm -hmm. move to your article is yeah what as okay you know i think to the story that you just told about being in school and that that was heartbreaking to hear that you were treated that way what was it like as an asian american in politics were you on equal footing with the people around you i would love to tell you des that everything is perfect and i was treated with dignity and i was equal and i had fair opportunities at everything and for a long time i tried to believe that if i were to be honest with you i just thought you know i worked really really hard i was very diligent i uh you know helped uh, meet my goals my quarterly or semi-annual goals i was supporting the boss in all the ways but i looked around and i noticed that um, promotions weren't really happening um feedback i got was generally along the lines of two pieces one i lacked executive presence. And I think what they meant by that was I didn't behave in a way that showcased traditional leadership. I think people think like in politics, like the louder you are, the more powerful you are. And that wasn't necessarily my style. But I think also deep down, I think there was a picture that maybe I wasn't the face of leadership. Hmm. And maybe it's perhaps that I'm part of 6% of the United States and maybe not the majority of the mm -hmm. United States, maybe that's part of it. And then the second thing was um, conflicting feedback that I received, it ranged from you're too quiet to you're too loud, to um, you need to focus more on the data, to you should go with your gut feeling, to um, you should be more proactive, to you should take a step back. And I have a number of friends who I've also received this feedback, but it's mainly my friends who identify as women. They're sort of this mixed messaging. I think what they really mean is that you are not leadership material, as in you will never be leadership material, right? Regardless of what you do or don't do. Um, and it, so it didn't seem to matter uh, what my real productivity was. And sometimes there were very clear goals that would be met. So just because you, I guess the big thing is just because you meet goals doesn't mean you'll be promoted. 
Mm-hmm. So I think it's asked a fundamental question, what does that take? Um, and so in, in politics in particular, right, I look at, uh, you know, three trends. One is, uh, com- you know, people from communities of color are generally mm, not represented in the largest numbers. There's fewer of us in the space. Mm-hmm. And actually, as a result, there's less of a support network or community within these structures and spaces. Two, if they were here, none of them were getting promoted anyways. So they would leave. And three, um, every boss I've ever had, except from when I was eight years old and mowing lawns for my father, was white. So every single boss or someone I reported to, um, you know, they didn't have the same life experience as me. And maybe that was something that was notable. Yeah. When you recognize that with that feedback, because that could not be more confusing, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's just, let me tell you two things at the opposite ends of the spectrum and expect you to figure out how to perform at your best. You know, it's uh, it's pretty defeating. When did you do anything differently as you as you got feedback? What what did you try? What did you attempt to mm-hmm. to to see any of the kind of progress that you were hoping for sure. in terms of promotion, movement, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I took the feedback in the moment, and so I would make the adjustments. But I noticed that a few months later, I'd be told to do the opposite again. So it was pretty clear that it was um, it was less of a ladder I was climbing and more of a treadmill that I was on. And even though I was running miles, I was staying in the same place with yeah. nowhere to go, except for what was in front of me, which was a wall. And I think that uh, that is pretty disheartening. And you know, I'm not saying I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? But I will say that you know, you and I went to a pretty notable university. Um, you and I have had uh, careers that have spanned a lot of um, successes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've worked for notable organizations, uh, in both in the private sector and in the public sector. Yep. Um, uh, you know, for me, um, it was pretty clear that uh, those credentials maybe did not matter as much as you would think. Um, yeah. You know, I was student body president at my graduate school. Um, I had twelve. Um, young professional fellowships with multiple leaders in multiple countries. Because I was really trying to assess what leadership principles or leadership values or leadership experience was I truly missing. And I thought, oh, well, I need to deepen my thought leadership because obviously I needed something else more. But it was pretty clear that those um, worlds really were not um, the solution to my challenge. The solution to my challenge was more um, accepting and realizing and repositioning how I viewed myself as my full self, as an Asian American, Vietnamese American who mm-hmm. worked in public service. It was something that I found that I denied and denied and denied, that I found that it was much stronger to try to fit in, to blend in, yeah. to laugh at the jokes. And in some ways, you know, in many ways, I should say, when I look back, I'm a little ashamed that I could have done so much more for more people had I just been okay with being different 
and understood that actually being different is a strength, right? Our heritage, your heritage, my heritage, that's actually a superpower. It's a perspective that no one else really has. And certainly my bosses who I described to you as kind of the same would never understand. I should have leaned into that more. It took me until last year to really embrace that. I spent my entire life running away from being Vietnamese American because I really thought that by being more pan panhuman, right? To to sort of not discuss the issue because it's taboo mm -hmm. would actually help me professionally, but more importantly, allow me to do more good for more people. But as I reflect back from public service and now in the private sector in particular, um, our values are even more important to be more outspoken, to make a stand and to frankly, use your voice to encourage others to speak up, right? And unfortunately, you and I know in our communities does, um, we are trained at a very early age, just like what my mother told me, right? Was like, hey, be careful, don't rock the boat. Um, you're, don't be, they won't see you as American, be careful. Because they really viewed it as life and death. It was more survive mm -hmm. rather than thrive. And I think that's unfortunately the curse and the challenge and hurdles that new Americans face is that they're working. My, my parents worked 18 hour days. Um, I didn't really see them very much, right? I just heard the car start in the morning and I heard the engine turn off at night. And in between, I didn't see them very much because they were trying to provide a life for myself and my brother and sister. But that experience should have helped empower me to talk about hardship, to discuss uh, the importance of representation and about showing that um, success looks like you and me. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to get there. Yeah, I I am so connected with you right now in agreement in those feelings. I personally feel like I am still on that journey, you know, to myself. I completely resonate with the notion of assimilation and wanting to run towards being American and not embracing my Filipino-ness, you know, um, in many ways. So yeah, you know, thank you for being vulnerable and, and saying that because I, I would guess that there are many others like us who have parents who are immigrants to this country and wanted nothing more than for us to fit in you know it's absolutely right and this is the thing right is i totally understand why our families told us the advice they told us because it really was life and death but for you and me it's no longer about survive we're the recipients of their hard work and sacrifice which means we have a responsibility not just to ourselves but to our community to push for um, representation and policies and, uh, frankly, power that more represents thrive. We should be thriving as a community, not just yeah. trying to survive. Absolutely. It's 2021. It's 2021. 2021. And it brings me to something really important and really powerful that you came back to, or I want to come back to that you talked about, which is um, you starting to do something different, 
And I, I reflect on one of those key things being that you began to speak up more vocally, more visibly, and you sent me this piece that you did, and I was in tears, <laughs> so I'm just gonna keep it together here, but you sent me this piece that you wrote in Politico magazine. So I wanna read the title of it, and I wanna read the excerpt from the start of the article to give everyone context, and I'll put the link in the description in the show notes so people can read it as well. It's called, I Thought I Knew How to Succeed as an Asian in US Politics. Boy, was I wrong. Many AAPIs have been taught that if we keep our heads down and stay quiet, one day we'll belong in America. But I began to fit in here only when I started speaking out. Go back to where you come from. You don't belong here, she, she calls out. I'm stunned. It's March 6, March 6, 2020, and a stranger out of nowhere has just spit on me in the Reno Tahoe International Airport. There's a virus in the news, something that came from China, but it's still a few days before the country really starts buckling under the weight of COVID-19. Personally, I'm just trying to get to my flight to San Francisco. I look around, saliva oozing down my cheeks, and I see a dozen witnesses look the other way. To them, I'm already it's already never happened. Instinctively, I shrug it off. Looks like I should have brought an umbrella with me. This isn't the first time that something like this has happened to me. I wryly smile and slink away. After all, I'm Vietnamese American. You had me at hello, Jeff. I mean, I, I read the article beginning to the very end, and I had so many emotions. But you spoke up. What, what made you do this? And what, what have you gained from telling a story that is so personal? Sure. I mean, it's not exactly like I was very excited to relive some of the most horrible things that have ever happened to me, right? But we are in a time of historic and unprecedented um and I should say very overt hate um, towards Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. I want to make it very clear though, this has always been around. It's just that it's on camera now. And I would say maybe even worse, it's accepted in some corners, right? Like that story that you read uh, about what happened to me last March in the airport while I was rushing for to a work trip, um, what I wanted readers to feel and understand was being spent on is horrible because there's this feeling like um, you are somehow subhuman. But to be completely honest, the worst part is the feeling when you look around and you realize that you really don't matter at all. And a feeling that the conditions that allow for such a thing to be to happen, to be accepted, and to be some degree be complicit in, that that was a tipping point for me. Now I'll be I'll also tell you, Des, I have been spit on before. <laughs> it's not the first time. And I will tell you what went through my head, besides making a joke about it, because that's what we do. 
we 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 shrug it off because we're conditioned to to blend back in quickly because actually we we just assume that's our fault that it's our shame and that we were the one in error mm -hmm. so what i was thinking immediately was if i say something the police will come and in 2021 and 2020 in america what will that mean for me i suspect it probably would have meant uh, an altercation and uh, unfortunately in our in our country altercations with people of color and certain uh, communities with power um, usually lend itself to bad results, bad outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. I was also at the time working for a company and uh, I was thinking immediately if, if something did happen, what would they, would they be in my corner? And I'd like to think so but you really can't chance such a thing. Mm -hmm. I also have an active security clearance. So would my security clearance be revoked? These are things I was thinking about. It wasn't about retribution. It wasn't about making a stand and being super brave. It was just about trying to get to my flight because I knew, um, I knew I'd already lost, but it was losing something I had already lost, which was my dignity. And so on that flight, I told myself that there has to be a different way for us to approach um, to approach making a stand and showing that we deserve to be here too, that we are American. I mean, Des, there are Asian Americans in this country that have lineages in the United States going back to 1850, right? Going back to building railroads. Mm -hmm. going back to Japanese internment camps, going back to um, other waves of migration. There are Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders that have been in the United States longer than many European Americans. Like we need to make this clear, Asian America as a whole is America. And in our home state of California, it's very much the case. Look at San mm -hmm. Francisco, look at, Asian American Pacific Islanders in the state, 15%. Yeah. Think about how much influence our society has. Um, look at the food. Look at mixed martial arts. Look at the movies. Mm -hmm. They see, you know, our society really seems to love all those things, but why can't they treat us like human beings? Mm -hmm. And it's touchy, right? Because I think we can acknowledge that we're not the only community that has been um, disproportionately affected, mm -hmm. right? And um, there is unfortunately a lie that Asian Americans are some perfect model minority that then is used to then compare us to other groups. And that is then treated as a wedge to then create a divide and conquer narrative and strategy which makes us a very less than perfect union. Yeah. And I can't tell you enough just how I, I hate being used. Um, and at the same time, um, being treated 
uh, like I should just be happy to be here, that I should accept what I'm given. And that, listen, you just, you know, you got your, you have your, you have a great job and you uh, have a great opportunity to make a home for yourself. That should be fine. I just wasn't going to accept that. And I will tell you in the year later, as the year went, uh, as I was formulating these ideas, I had two other really major events happen that really pushed me over. The first uh, was, uh, unfortunately, COVID-19 affected many Asian Americans uh, and many other communities. In fact, uh, I unfortunately, personally, and I'm, I know many people uh, were directly affected by COVID-19, but I lost nine friends in 2020. I went to nine of these Zoom memorials and some of it was COVID-19 related. Some of it was other health issues and some of it was just purely tragic things. Here's the worst part. Every single one of them under the age of 47. Now, life expectancy in the United States is closer to 80, right? 78, 79, 47. So uh, there was this feeling, um, there was this feeling like you, you could no longer put this off because life is so short and precious. And so that's um, among us peers, our friendships. But then in August, um, I was having a conversation with my parents. You know, my parents, after they um, ran this gardening company in Southern California, they uprooted and moved to Southern Georgia where they run a free range organic chicken farm. Okay, I know it sounds pretty random, Des, but our family has had a long history in agriculture. And they started this farm with nothing and built this, I think, pretty successful business. They have, at any given point, 200,000 chickens running around. They do pretty well. They work long hours, but they do real things and, and serve real people. It's pretty cool, right? It's pretty cool. Really cool. Yeah. Um, but when COVID-19 happened, um, by August, a number of the neighbors, friends, community members that they had forged relationships with over the 20 years had told them that they couldn't be friends with them anymore because they, they being my parents, were the reason why there was a virus. Now, never mind that my parents are from Vietnam originally. Never mind that they broke bread together, did business together, saw their kids grow up together. Never mind that my parents are American citizens and actually historically probably have more concerns about China justifiably than other groups, right? <laughs> if you had to go deep, right? Yeah, history, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Uh, right? As you know, Filipino, I mean, similar, I think. Um, but to hear uh, my parents try to diminish that shame, to try to hear them pretend that it didn't bother them was just absolutely crushing. And that's when I decided, that's the moment, that was the moment where I decided I was going to start speaking up. I wasn't just going to think about it anymore. It had been on my mind constantly. I wasn't going to think about it anymore. And that's when I decided I was going to go to the medium that I felt strongest in, which was in writing, mm -hmm. which writing is a dying art and who the heck has the attention to read, right? In the social media world. Um, but my thinking was I would write in the local paper mm -hmm. and highlight the contributions of immigrants during 
COVID-19, right? Immigrants uh, at the front lines of healthcare, right? Um, you know, I think uh, you're probably aware that, you know, you have Filipino nurses that have disproportionately been um, affected by COVID-19. They're on the front line. Um, thinking about um, immigrants who were supporting um, their small businesses, trying to keep things afloat. Um, immigrants who were involved in the research and development of vaccines. Um, immigrants who serve as doctors in rural communities like my parents, right? Um, in Georgia, there are a number of counties that don't even have a doctor, right? Or a pediatrician or an OBGYN. But you know who ends up serving these groups is immigrants. So just the disconnect between these, these people who do everything they can to serve this country to then be told uh, during a time of conflict that uh, it's your fault, even though they've been here their whole, you know, 40 years. That was hard. Uh, and so I decided to write that piece. It was in this tiny little paper called the Albany Herald. Um, probably a readership of, I don't know, 30,000 max. Mm -hmm. um, but something happened. The piece came out. And later on, um, those same people went up to my parents and apologized. And that was when I realized that when you speak up, it does matter. I couldn't tell you what I thought would happen. That was probably not the likely scenario, I thought. <laughs> Let's just be real here, right? Especially in our yeah. culture today. Like, you know, forgiveness and this sort of thing, of course, is important, right? But it's not exactly where people eat crow. That's not what you expect. But that's when I started writing different pieces in, in different publications on different issues, mainly affecting, um, you know, marginalized groups and paths to support them in times of in the COVID-19 times, right? Whether that was veterans, whether that was rural communities who are underserved like my parents, um, you know, whether that was, um, you know, groups affected by, uh, you know, lack of uh, access to the criminal justice uh, support system. Right? Mm -hmm. So much of America um, was on deferred maintenance of sorts, right? Like it was very clear that some of the institutions that were supposed to support us were not doing that. And then COVID-19, I think, as you know, that was very much exposed, right? Not just in terms of systems and structures, but also uh, in terms of people's true feelings about who is considered American and who's considered the other. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was my moment um, to say something. And it's something that, you know, as we, you know, go through this 2021, we are seeing quite an awakening here, right? You're seeing more activism, engagement, allyship, support, demand for something different, for something more. And I'm proud to be able to lend my voice to encourage others, most importantly, to speak mm -hmm. up themselves because I'm, I'm nobody, right? But if someone like me, someone that just took the time to write something, to say something, 
couldn't we all do a little bit of something to say something? Because we have no idea who's reading or hearing our voice. And maybe that could be the difference for a young person, um, a single mom, um, someone who's been toiling in middle management, looking for somebody to absolutely hear and see them, to finally be seen. That to me is really what we as a community and we as a nation need to be doing. We need to be encouraging others to share their stories because the, the story is what, the, what is powerful to me, right? Hearing, the, um, hearing and watching people showcase their gifts for others, we need to encourage this. We need to cherish this. We need to nurture this. Rather than what I see as uh, divisive acts of hate and violence that, um, and scapegoating that makes us all want to return back into our shell, back into just trying to get along, mm -hmm. just trying to get by, and just trying to not stick out or stand out. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you've written many pieces so you've, you've gotten quite good at, at doing this. And I think that is such a powerful response that those individuals gave to your parents. What has been some other notable response that you've gotten from speaking out? Sure. Uh, you know, um, the article you referenced in Politico from April, um, you know, when that piece landed, um, I received probably about 3,000 emails from strangers, um, probably about 2,500 messages on LinkedIn from strangers, about 1,000 text messages from people who have known me over the years. And great, don't get me wrong, Des, I, I didn't expect to be everyone's Asian friend. That's not, <laughs> that's not what I was trying to be. But um, I think our communities were really looking for someone to, to really say something because, you know, as you, as, as you know, from this year, right after the horrible tragedy in Atlanta, the, the murders of these women of Asian heritage, which I, we, we have to be very clear, uh, women, Asian American Pacific Islander women during this pandemic, during this wave of hate have been negatively affected much more. Right. I mean, as an Asian American guy, I mean, I can't say it's been roses, but I can just tell you right now, it's been disproportionately far worse for, for women. And um, stop AAPI hate, uh, you know, which is more, um, you know, this is voluntary submissions. You know, they were able to say, yeah, they've two thirds of these, uh, you know, statements and um, supporting, supporting concerns came from women. You and I both know it's much higher than that. Mm -hmm. And it's probably a number far bigger than 3,800 that were reported. This is reported, right? Not reality. But that number is far higher. But unfortunately, in our community, we're the least likely to report hate crime. Some of that is culture. Some of that is shame, as we talked about. And some of that is um, cultural barriers or language barriers, right? Um, not um, feeling empowered to feel like they would be believed or that they'd matter. Um, so that, that to me was um, a very powerful response from that piece. Um, I would say for a perspective of, of real results, right? Um, 
some of the highest levels of our government uh, reached out after uh, the peace to talk about representation for us, to talk about government services for us, to talk about how we fight hate crime together. Mm -hmm. When you write something, it's not exactly like you're thinking that people from the White House would call you. It's not like you think that members of Congress are going to call you and take copious notes or just want to be there for you. It's not what you really expect in 2021, right? You don't expect your leaders to actually actively try to reach out to you, but that's what happened. And it wasn't just leaders in, in the in political circles. It was also leaders in different nonprofit organizations, uh, you know, different community groups, associations, all coming out. And I will say, not even just these groups, but you know, in 3,000 messages from students, from aspiring artists, from future lawyers, from people passionate to be a part of the innovation economy, to classically trained musicians, whatever the case, actors. Mm-hmm. It was such a swath of people. And I guess I just didn't anticipate how much resonance there'd be. And it, and it reminded me of, of this very powerful message I try to give to my teams whenever they're in a place where they're not feeling great. And I try to remind people of the four most powerful words in the world, which is, I believe in you. And there was so much of this feeling, this togetherness I would feel in all these messages. And I got through almost all of them. I think I'm down to the last 75. But this feeling like for the first time in a very long time, I was not alone. And that our community really does matter. And its potential is incredible. And so now you're seeing this awakening that's happening, that people are no longer accepting what they're given. And this is a group of people that have a history of bringing of being pretty tough and dealing with adversity. But this is the big theme that I got from many of these messages, which was at the end, an understanding that to truly be a part of something, to truly feel like you can take on some of these challenges, to feel like you um, can showcase your gifts and your skills, and demand what you deserve and what you'll fight for, you needed to embrace your heritage. And so for someone who was, I would say, more of a a banana, yellow on the outside, white on the inside, Mm -hmm. to have helped spark a connection for people to embrace the heritage they've always run away from, that heritage then inspires action, that heritage... Uh, inspires stories of why you fight discrimination. Uh, that heritage records and sparks activism and a booming voice in our public discourse. You know, and this feeling um, beyond this booming voice, and this is the kicker, right? That your heritage is a strength, not a weakness that can push and drive and spark national change. And I'm really proud that as a Vietnamese American, I get to be a part of that, right? And I know that you and 
your listeners, our listeners, our community uh, will listen to this. And I hope they understand that they get to be a part of the difference that matters and that they matter. That to me is the big takeaway here is by embracing your whole self, you can make the biggest difference for the most people. Yeah. And I just, I thank you for setting that example, you know, because you took brave action. And I mean, obviously it took some pretty unfortunate situations to really drive you to do that. And once you did, you didn't take your foot off the accelerator, you know, you can. And I think that's, I just want to say that it's an important point to make because showing up in a very specific time of adversity is something that we've seen great example of, and I applaud. I mean, uh, but continuing to show up is a different story, right? Totally. And I would say this too, right? Um, I get so many questions about, okay, what should I do now? Right? Because now people have had this sort of aha moment. And you know, I'll tell you four things that I think people should do that I think are, um, they're things that are totally doable for everybody. Uh, they're not necessarily the most political things. It's sort of the, I think the baseline of where we should be going to take steps forward, right? I mean, the first thing I, I mentioned, right, is share your story, share your family's experience, and then have a conversation with somebody. Uh, you know, in our politics and in our society today, we're always talking at each other or past each other. Have the conversation. Here's the thing. Having these conversations about equity and justice and racial quality, the hardest audience to have that conversation with is with your family. I'll just tell you, I get countless emails from friends saying, I can talk to strangers. I'm happy to have a discussion. I can't talk to my uncle. Which is interesting because when you hear the most impactful things is it starts at the kitchen table. Totally. How many times do we hear that when it comes to change, changing ideology, uh, influencing new behavior, new patterns, new habits? And it's the hardest place to do it. It's the hardest. It's totally the hardest. Um, and so have this conversation, right, with with loved ones. Because if you can win over your loved ones, I think really anything is possible. Um, <laughs> honestly, right? I mean, think about, you know, our families, right? It's our families that bring out the best and sometimes not the best in us, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It's amazing how you can be a young professional one moment and then with your family, you're 13 years old again. Oh yeah, you know, or story, story of our lives. <laughs> exactly, or worse, uh, your family members go from being the adults to being the children, and you go to being the adults. That is interesting. I've seen that a lot lately. All the time. Uh, the second thing I'd say, right, for us to to think about really tangible, real things we can do, uh, learn our history. Asian American Pacific Islander history is so, so rich and beautiful and complicated. It requires real inspection. Um, I always recommend to people at a very basic level, the baseline would be to watch the PBS series on Asian Americans. 
that is just incredibly powerful. And yeah, ideally, re, you know, read an API author, any author, because they'll share a part of their story that is representative of a community of color in in a time of complication that I think is very relevant to where we are now. Absolutely. The third one, um, and I think you'll appreciate this, is um, support API small businesses and restaurants that have been disproportionately affected, right? Think about all the Chinatowns and Koreatowns, Japantowns, Chinatowns, little Manilas that are still not seeing the foot traffic that you would think at this point in, uh, you know, heading to summer. Mm -hmm. you, so you can vote with your feet, right? You can decide who you want to support and encourage. And these are businesses and community members that, um, you know, dealt with uh, significant uh, acts of hate against them and, and fear had to close their businesses, right? It wasn't just COVID-19. It wasn't just the lack of loans, right? It was also because of hate. And then the fourth thing, which I know you are definitely a big supporter of, but um, vote with your time and mentor someone. Listen to a young person, encourage them, teach them, share your experiences with them. There's nothing more powerful um, than giving your time and your wisdom to somebody who really would benefit from that life experience, right? Um, you know, learning learning something new uh, from failure, I mean, that's great. Learning someone else's failure <laughs> and taking that, that's wisdom, right? Oh, Let's yeah. give people more wisdom. Yeah, Mentor, that's, mentorship, that's yeah. huge. It's huge. Mentorship goes a long way. You and I have um, passion in this area, and uh, it's it's how you grow the next generation of empowerment because you brought up something so important that I want to make sure to, to call out specifically, which is we have the power right now, today, in 2021, to change the narrative. We have the power to do that right now with our voices, with the, with the utility of technology at our fingertips. Uh, and that's the beauty of what we've been able to, to utilize in the pandemic and communicate, you know, a lot of critical pieces of information. So I'm so glad that you shared those, those four things. So, I mean, I, what I'm hoping that this, your story has inspired is a, a key dominant big headliner, <laughs> which is, which is action. You know, it's, we're no longer in a position to sit and watch and observe. You know, my, my mom got me a taser the other day because she said, this is the times that we're in. You're, you're Asian and I am, and I'm older and I'm worried about what's gonna happen. And when I went to the, when I went to the Asian market to buy the such and such, I saw this and I watched this on the news and it is, it is a, and I totally understand, right? My mom is in that generation. She is seeing and hearing things and it's, it is scary. And, and I'm, I'm not, 
you know, uh, discrediting that at all because it's real and it is what is portrayed constantly when, can I when just, you turn on the TV. Can I just say, first off, uh, the the video the video footage of a random act of hate or a random act of violence against an Asian American is pretty common right now. And uh, your mom's fears are unfortunately valid mm -hmm. and not unreasonable. I'll, gi I'll give you an example of just how pervasive this fear is you're talking about. The fear mm -hmm. where your mother feels like she needs to get you a taser, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I'm on a WhatsApp chain with a number of friends. There's about 30 of us on there. The number one conversation right now is a conversation about what is the best pepper spray. And, it's, and the conversation is pretty detailed. It goes into painful, uh, painful and striking, um, how to say, points <laughs> where it talks about uh, what kind of handle is good, uh, how long is the chain, is, does the chain include an alarm, is there a flashing light? What about decibels? How loud is the decibels, right? Um, what about the spray radius? And also, does the spray radius come back to you? And um, can you attach a knife to this? This is a conversation from young people between the ages of 27 to 44. <clears throat> Again, these are folks with from a pretty consistent background of young professional that you would picture thinking they should be able to walk down the street probably without fear. And unfortunately that is not the case. Yeah. And I, and I just go back to the importance of what you said, if we can be tangible, authentic, <coughs> vulnerable, in these conversations, we can start to create community and embrace each other so we can start to feel safe. And it's, and it's this perspective of, of strength in numbers, right? Like that's <laughs> oh, yeah. why it's important that you speak up, right? Because if you speak up, other people speak up. And then it isn't, it isn't just a few voices, it's one very loud voice, right? And that is power. Amassing power is the difference between feeling, you know, feeling fear and feeling strength. Yeah. That's why it's so important to lead with that, right? Rather than going into detail about, you know, what kind of taser is legal in the state of California, <laughs> right? I mean, just, I, I would personally, I'd rather have you put your money into other things, right? I don't know. What about stock, right? I mean, right. there's many things that you should oh, you know, put absolutely. your money in. Yeah. What about, you know, what about your CrossFit membership or, uh, you know, um, you know, buying, you know, buying dinner for family. Like I would rather have you invest in that, but instead you're investing not only money, but your mind share, your bandwidth your worries into a very justifiable and understandable concern of your physical and mental health and safety. Mm -hmm. This yeah. isn't just you and this isn't just your mom and this isn't just me and this isn't 30 of my friends on WhatsApp. There's a lot more people than that. Absolutely. Yeah. And this, and you know, and this is, this is where it starts and this is, this is just the beginning. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here. This is the, you know, 
tip of the iceberg, as they as they may say, and it's conversations that we can replicate like this. And I hope this has been an example for people. So you know, I, I know it seemed heavy, but I hope there was inspiration and in just you know being able to think specifically of what you can do to make a difference, whether you are AAPI or whether you are an ally to our community. Everybody can make a difference in, in, in being able to open the aperture of conversations like this. But I want to ask, so you've, you've done all of this. You've taken this huge position in a new role as a vice president at Rhino. What is next for Jeff Lee? What, what does this road mean for you? <laughs> well, I mean, first up, <laughs> let, let me tell your audience about 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 Rhino first, right? Ryan, so you know, I you know, I always wanted to work for a startup, um, and it's just so terrifying, like to say that as someone who's worked in government and bigger <laughs> organizations, right? My previous company was thirty eight thousand people, but Rhino is a small Series B startup, fintech startup, that is trying to provide solutions and alternatives to traditional old cash security deposits for renters, mm -hmm. right? And uh, if anything that COVID-19 has taught us is that a lot of working families don't just have money laying around. That's one thing I know for sure. And mm -hmm. housing in particular in the state of California is no easy thing to find, not even for renting, let alone buying. Good luck even trying to buy inventory, not an easy task, right? But you know, think about um, you know, the average American family who has one month's rent, one month's last rent, and a one month security deposit. Who has that right now? And the, you know, the marketplace of renters is about 120 million. So one third of America is renting something. That's the universe. And think about all the people that once, um, right now we have moratoriums on evictions across the US, mm -hmm. that will not be there forever. So think about who is gonna need to find security, uh, physical security, uh, and find a new place to live. And one barrier to housing is the upfront cost. In particular, uh, this Byzantine security deposit, right? Um, so imagine if instead of putting up the $2,000, right? $1,500 upfront, imagine you just pay $10, $20. Now it's non-refundable, but you don't have to give up $2,000 that you probably aren't gonna get back in full, probably not. I don't know about you, but that's never happened to me in all the renting <laughs> I have had, <laughs> you know, even if I keep it pristine. So, so yes, you would lose 10 to 20 bucks a month, right? Let's say, but you would then have in theory, right? The money to put those um, resources into things that you really need and think about working families, think about um, undocumented community members, think about um, families, uh, experiencing economic disruption. Think about families experiencing domestic violence. Think about um, aspiring labor members who are now apprentices and don't have the upfront money yet. Think about young professionals in their first internship, but yeah. it's somewhere else. Think about um, you know other public servants who probably don't have the, the means. Think about the Bay Area and trying to find a place to live. And putting yeah. up that deposit. So I, I'm covering their 
you know, this company's public policy across 50 states. Oh, um, that sounds so easy. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it is fascinating. Uh, but learning about housing needs, barriers, concerns, priorities, whether that's San Francisco or Dallas or Miami, there's so many challenges. Um, so, you know, I told myself if I was going to go to a startup, it would be a startup that was trying to promote real good in a real way for real people. And I think this is a great opportunity, right? This is about engaging communities, having conversations with, with property management groups, right? Having a thoughtful discussion with policymakers and local leaders, and then trying to highlight the opportunities for innovation um, in the housing sector and to have that conversation in the public space right now is, is very timely. So that's, that's what I'm doing now. I'm really excited about that. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work, but again, 120 million renters. Um, Rhino's services right now are in about 1 million homes. Mm -hmm. So it's one one twentieth of the market. That you got a lot. Is, you got a lot of work ahead of you, Jeff. A lot of upside. <laughs> a lot of upside. Yes, a lot, a lot of, of sleep. Upside. A lot of sleepless nights. But uh, I'm excited for the opportunity. You know, from the non wheelchair accessible doors twenty years ago to the doors across America. I mean, you are fighting the good fight. And the last couple of questions that I have for you are mm -hmm. really an opportunity to get your perspective um, for to people to get to know you and to get your perspective a little bit sure. more. So I have, I have five questions. Okay, I'm ready. The first one, we'll start with something easy, I think. Mm -hmm. What three words best describe you? Oh my goodness. Um, high energy positivity. Amazing. Okay. They start to get they start to get a little harder. Uh -oh. No. Uh -oh. I hope there's <laughs> not a wrong answer. <laughs> no, there's not a wrong not. answer for not. sure. No. Okay. What what's something about yourself that you're working on improving? Oh my gosh, there's so many things right now. <laughs> one of one of the things I'm trying to improve on uh, actually is taking the time to do breathing exercises. It's something that um, I wish I had learned to do more consistently early on in my life. Mm -hmm. But uh, at a startup, the pace is so crazy that you really need to center yourself before you dive in. And so just breathing, which I know sounds so so basic, but when you're overwhelmed and you're trying to do so many things that push you into so many different directions at the same exact time, uh, it's just helpful to let yourself have some perspective before you dive back in. That's mm -hmm. something I'm trying to improve on. Um, I'm still breathing, so that's so good far so good, right? right? Yeah. Uh, so so far, I'm I'm still breathing. That's great. Yeah. Um, There's studies that show mm -hmm. the benefit of practicing mindful breathing, even at one and two minute clips. I, it makes a ton of sense. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to breathe on you know 30 seconds, 45 seconds at any given time. <laughs> like, I'm working on. on it. Two minutes? That's too long. I got yeah. 30 seconds right now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's already there's already 10 emails going in. You know, ding, ding, ding. Right. So yeah, yeah. yeah. 30, 45 seconds is a good start for me. I have a That's lot. A of room, I have a lot of room to improve, Des. 
That's good. That's good. You're working mm -hmm. on that. I like that. That's right. Okay. That's right. <clears throat> What's a self-limiting belief that you've had to overcome? Um, you know, if I were to be honest, I think this uh, this feeling like uh, there are far more qualified people for anything and that I am generally not qualified for things. So I think the phrase people use is imposter syndrome. I think I felt that for a long time, and I'm sure your listeners experience that. I, he I heard from a close friend a great definition of imposter syndrome, which I wanted to share. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it really makes sense, but it's when it's when your competence far exceeds your confidence. And if that's the case, there's a lot of people that have imposter syndrome, <laughs> right? And I oh, will yeah. tell you, I will tell you, if there are people that don't have imposter syndrome with that definition, maybe maybe we don't have an issue and other people have an issue. So <laughs> that, that that's something I thought about though, right? It's like you spend so much time trying to just be competent. You sort of forget actually to believe in yourself. Yeah. Um, right? And to the point we talked about earlier, uh, I, I wish I'd had stronger or more long-lasting mentorship right had that happened maybe maybe i would have gotten over that quicker right yeah. so again very powerful that we give back oh uh, yeah absolutely and i think that is that is certainly one that many people are over overcoming right there with you <clears throat> okay what is one thing that you want to see changed in the world oh oh my goodness um the one thing I want to see change in the world these days here, I mean, I would love, I would love it if, uh, you know, we had a better opportunity to share our failures. I, I say this because we so focus on like the success story. I wish there was more space to talk about um, our shortcomings because I think our shortcomings is so much more powerful to learn from. Because I think if you were successful all the time, what did you actually learn? Yeah. Right. Um, so I wish that um, I wish organizations, particularly in the public sector, uh, learn to appreciate uh, and then quickly adapt to the lessons learned from falling short on goals. Yeah. So I, I would apply that to my life as well. I, I think um, I think that uh, we would be better served learning from things that didn't go our way. That said. Uh, and this might be an Asian thing. Um, <laughs> I wish, I wish that we could spend more time celebrating success too. So it's this balancing. I'm in mean, so much of government and public service, and now being in a startup, right? Is okay. Let's move on. Like that's the next problem, the next challenge, the next community to support, the next investment, the next achievement, the next milestone. Rather than sort of just like taking that thirty to forty-five seconds to breathe a little. Yeah and acknowledge that something really positive happened yeah. and that we should be very thankful uh, and that we can appreciate that and share that with our team. I agree. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. Okay. My final question mm. is what's one of the best pieces of advice that you've ever been given? Oh, <laughs> the best piece of advice I've been given that I definitely could recite on air uh, is if it's not you, it's going to be someone far worse. And I and I just say this to say that uh, you have quality and you deliver something unique and special. Uh, don't discount yourself 
before you walk into the arena. Um, that took a long time to acknowledge. But I think that's that's something I would share. Wow. That to me was very, that's very <clears throat> just true to what we do and live every day now. Yeah. Oh, that is so good. Jeff, how can people find you? And follow follow you and, you know, because they want to be the 5,000th person that might want to ask you a question. <laughs> um, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Jeffrey D. Lee, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-D-L-E with one E since it's Vietnamese. Um, one e. <laughs> so that's, that's a great way you can follow me. And that's where you can probably follow some of my uh, upcoming writing yes. that I have. Um, you know, I usually try to post writing and that, you know, does happen to receive attention in uh, national publications and regional works. Um, and luckily we're in a time where there's more than enough to talk about. So I hope that uh, you'll follow along and and take the time to read and tell me what you, you know, tell me what you think and tell me what you didn't love. Uh, yeah. I, I certainly would, I mean, welcome the opportunity for dialogue and discourse, right? Um, and if you want to send hate mail, I get a lot of that too. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's totally okay. Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine told me, a writing friend told me, if you don't get hate mail, you're doing something wrong. And I think that's, there's some truth to that. Right. It's yeah. true. When you, when you put your, when you put your voice out there, there's going to be agreement and there's going to be conflict, but I think that's what's healthy is the point is that there wouldn't, you're, you're creating conversation that didn't exist and we need to get somewhere. So absolutely better to better to get somewhere and make progress than to to be stuck in our archaic <laughs> archaic ways right that's right so <clears throat> thank you so much for the abundance of time i know that you've got a whole host of things to solve based on what you've described so you just really holding space means a lot to me because like i said this has been um you know i i always have toiled with this of, of, oh, well, when's the right time? Oh, I don't want to ruffle feathers. Or, oh, you know, I don't, maybe, maybe we just, you know, have one-on-one -on -one conversations. It's not something that needs to be on the air or recorded. And it's like the same reservations that you've described is the courage that you've inspired me to, to share and to open up the doors and set an example. So thank you for inspiring this conversation. It means, it means a lot. And I know that those listening um, will get a lot out of it too. Well, I appreciate it. And I hope all of your you know viewers and listeners here um, just know that we're in a time where you should absolutely be unapologetically yourself. You can do so much more if you bring your whole self uh, to our communities. So for that, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to speak to you and your listeners. Thank you. Yes. Oh, yes. And now I'm looking forward to an opportunity when we can actually congregate in person at some point <clears throat> because 20 years is just a long time to not, you know, well, no, we, we did in between. There was a time when you visited and when you were doing your big running and that's you, right. came, you came out and we did hang out and that that's, was, that's right. But it's never enough, you know, and it I is forward, never enough. And you know what? Um, you know, you only live once unless you're Buddhist or Hindu. So we should make it count. Uh, <laughs> and great. I look I look forward to our next milestone together, uh, hopefully over Mexican food, which I miss tremendously, let me tell you. Uh, being in being in the DC area, I can't say it's the greatest Mexican food in history. Uh, and I certainly miss miss that in the great city of California. 
So I'm looking you're, forward you're, to that. You're talking about carne asada fries, Jeff. Let's just, <laughs> you know, let's put it out there. We had that in San Diego. Now I'm just unleashing things that maybe others have not had the good fortune to try. But if you are ever down in San Diego, give that a try. Absolutely. It'll change your whole life. Change Absolutely. Your whole life. Yeah. I mean, you won't be able to move for a couple of days, but it'll be well worth it. So. Uh, yeah. No struggle, no progress, right? <laughs> That's right. Oh, well, thank you so much. And we will definitely be talking more, my friend. I look forward to it. I am so grateful to have Jeff on the show. I personally am influenced by Jeff's work and inspired to do even more around empowering the Asian Pacific Islander community as an Asian Pacific Islander myself. And one of the biggest revelations that I had is just this notion of assimilation that you have if you're an immigrant, uh, come from an immigrant, immediate uh, <clears throat> immigrant family. So Jeff talked about his parents coming from Vietnam and my father came here from the Philippines and I remember when I was young being taught that English was the thing that I needed to learn and blending in and doing things the American way was the way and it wasn't until later years through teenage years and adulthood that I embraced aspects of my heritage that Jeff was talking about. And I will fully admit right now that I have more work to do to understand all of my roots and and do more to, to not only learn from myself, but to be able to pay that forward in my family as the next generations come about and being able to have those tough conversations that Jeff said, because it does start at the kitchen table. When we can have that conversation amongst ourselves in our families about race, about diversity, about equality, about tough things, then we are even more empowered and equipped and prepared to have those conversations outside of our homes. And that's the place that we need to get, right? That's the beauty of community connection and being able to thrive like Jeff was talking about. Don't get me wrong. We have a long way to go in this area, a long way to go, but I am hopeful that we can be the people that change the narrative and show up for each other when things get difficult and we're treated regardless of what race or religion or creed that you believe in, that we are first human beings and we treat each other with kindness and compassion because those are the, that is the fabric of what makes us stronger is when we come together with our love for each other and for people, that's when great things happen. Divisiveness does not serve us. History has repeated that a thousand times over. Wars have been started and we still see disappointing things that are happening today that are is less than what we should be. And if we all 
did our part to show up and take action, we can get closer and closer to making it better for the generations to come. So I thank you for listening to the important conversation that is just the beginning, not the ending. It is opening a door for you to be able to expand this conversation even further in your own circles, at your own dinner table and the dinner tables that you're invited to. So I hope you've been inspired. I thank you so much for tuning into the Born and Breakable podcast. Tune in again next week for an episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you have not already. Follow the show so you can stay updated on everything that is happening because there is always something exciting to look forward to. I will see you again next week.